You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to Citizens Church. If you're new, uh, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching online, thank you for uh, joining us from wherever you are. Uh, We are starting a new series uh, this morning, a new sermon series that'll last for most of the fall. And I want to start with a question. It's a simple question. It's a super important question. It's a question I think all of the room would be able to offer at least one answer for, if not multiple answers. The question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, So if you're uh, new to Christianity, you probably have some answers to that. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you have an answer. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably at least could have a few ideas or offer a few words about what it should mean to be a Christian or what it means to you that other people are a Christian. And I want to name some answers. Let's start with wrong answers. Being a Christian means being better than other people, means being superior to all of the lost people around us. And that's not true. It's a wrong answer. Um, All that we have as Christians has been given. It hasn't been earned. And so Christians don't strut. They limp. We're not to be proud, but humble. Here's another wrong answer. Uh, Being a Christian means God protects you from all pain and fills your life with material prosperity, physical safety, and emotional bliss. And if that's what Christianity is selling, many of us in the room want our money back um, because that's not true. Uh, It's a lie. The lie is that Christianity offers an easier life. I'll follow Jesus and my life will get more comfortable and easier. And and, uh, the reality is, is Christianity doesn't offer an easier life. It offers the one way to live a meaningful life. And part of that meaning includes pain and suffering and meaning in the suffering. Jesus said, if you follow me, life will get more difficult. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Okay, how about another wrong answer? Being a Christian means trying your very best to act right and follow the rules, and you hope that uh, in the end you did more good than you did bad. So in the end, reflecting on a whole life lived, maybe all of your good outweighs your bad. And goodness, I sure hope that's not true, because if it is, then I'm in big trouble. Um, God doesn't, here's God, in what God sees. Like maybe there's a shot at that if God can only see what I do, maybe. But God doesn't just see what I do. God sees what I want, all the things I want that I shouldn't want. And God doesn't just hear what I say, but God knows what I'm thinking. All of the, and and sometimes that's dark. Um, I was flying home from a trip last weekend and I sat next to a guy who smacked his gum the entire flight. And I can't tell you how many dark, unloving, terrible things (laughs) I thought about this guy made in the image of God, you know? You know, it's just not that hard to chew gum and not be louder than an airplane, you know? (laughs) See, I still haven't let it go. I'm still provoked by it. And after all of my years with Jesus, I still don't have enough love in my heart to be able to tolerate someone doing something that's not sin. It's just annoying. So if this is about doing more good than bad, and that includes the things that I want that God can see and the things that I think that God can hear, then I'm in trouble. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, those are all wrong answers, thank God. If we're in conversation, most likely you would say something to me like, it means having your sins forgiven. Uh, It means faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It means being changed by His grace to look like Him 
day by day. Uh, because of the way we talk about it specifically here, maybe you'd say it means being a citizen of King Jesus and living on earth as it is in heaven. And if you gave any of those answers, those are all wonderful and true answers. There's a phrase, though, that you'll find all over the New Testament, and I think that this little phrase holds the best answer, the most complete answer for what it means to be a Christian. It's especially found in the letters of the Apostle Paul. It's two words in English, and they hold the very heart of Christianity. Uh, One theologian called these two words theological shorthand for the gospel itself. And I want to read several verses to you that have this phrase in it and just ask you to listen for the phrase with me. Let me say this first. This morning, all morning, we're going to be in a lot of Scripture. Uh, And there might be a tendency in that uh, for us to check out a bit because as a people, we're pretty easily distracted. Uh, But I just want to remind us that you, friend, did not come here to check out. You came here to be changed by encountering the goodness and loveliness and beauty of our God in His Word. So stay with me and hang with me on every word. Um, Listen for the two words. They hold the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Did you hear it? In Christ. Jackie read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Uh, just a moment ago. It's one sentence in Greek, and in that one sentence, you find in Christ or some variation of it 11 times in one sentence. Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him 160 times in his letters. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, talks about being one with him or being united to him, and, and he points to that as the essential nature of what it means to follow him. So all over the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, the other biblical authors, when they talk about what it means to follow Jesus, they talk about being in him, in Christ, with Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? One of the most concise, clear, complete, and compelling ways to answer that question is to say being a Christian means being in Christ. We are starting a series this morning called, anyone want to guess? In Christ. It's behind me, isn't it? Y'all cheated. Okay, the hope in doing a series called In Christ is that we would see from God's Word over a handful of weeks that being in Christ is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And, and what at the heart of, heart of what it means to be a human as God intended humanity. So here's what this morning will look like. Uh, I just want to answer two questions as a way to set up the series. Right now, the plan is for this series to be about seven to eight weeks, which if you know me, that means it'll be anywhere from eight weeks to three years. And this morning is very much an introduction, and it will very much so feel like an introduction. And here's what I mean by that. I will bring up a handful of things 
that need, that demand more time uh, for us to unpack those and think about those and consider those, but we're going to have to wait for, for other Sundays to do that. Uh, I just want to answer two questions this morning. What does it mean to be in Christ, and what am I hoping that God does in these weeks? What does it mean to be in Christ, and what are my pastoral hopes for us in this series? Are you with me? All right. What does it mean to be in Christ? When theologians talk about this, uh, they often use a theological phrase called union with Christ. It's a bit of a catch-all term because uh, being in Christ, there's multiple layers to it. It's multifaceted, and so union with Christ is the phrase that, that kind of uh, houses a lot of different truths that we find. There's a chance you've never heard the phrase union with Christ. Uh, a lot of uh, people who write about this and teach about this and talk about this, they claim that it's an underemphasized and over-neglected doctrine in our churches. In fact, one author called union with Christ the most important doctrine you've never heard of. Others call it the bedrock upon which all other doctrines of salvation stand. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have His way, come to share in the life of Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So to share in the life of Christ is union with Christ language. It means the, the whole offer of Christianity is life in Christ of being with Jesus. And if that's true, which I think it is, then we need to have a, a good handle on what's being said. So let me offer a definition from a theologian and then a metaphor from Jesus. There's a theologian named Louis Burkhoff, and he said union with Christ is this. It's the intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and His people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. It's a wonderful definition. It's an intimate union where Jesus is the source of life and every other good thing that we can hope to have. When Jesus talks about this, though, he doesn't give his disciples or us a definition. Instead, he gives an image. And in John 15, uh, he's likely, in John 15, he's likely walking through a vineyard or some sort of field filled with trees. So he's left the upper room where they did communion together, and he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be betrayed and arrested. And, and in between Jerusalem and the Garden of Gethsemane is a vineyard. And so likely they're walking through this vineyard, and Jesus looks around at the vineyard hours before he's arrested, a day before he's crucified. And in John 15, 5, he says this, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's an intimate image. Jesus says, I'm the vine. We are the branches. And what does the branch have apart from the vine? Uh, you're walking through your yard and you see a branch on the ground that fell out of the tree. What do you know about that branch just laying there? It's useless. Firewood, right? It's, um, it, it, it has no life. It has no potential to bear fruit, and so therefore it has no future. So what does the branch have apart from the vine? Nothing. What does the branch have connected to the vine? Everything it needs. That's the image. Life, nutrients, fruit-bearing potential. So Jesus is saying, without me, disconnected from me, you can do nothing. But with me, united to me, in me, you have all that you need. That's union with Christ, being in Him, uh, means I have life and strength and blessing and salvation and love and future and all of it. And all of that comes from a source whose roots are God Himself. 
As the New Testament teases this out, it's going to talk about it in a few different ways. And and again, it's multifaceted. So some verses will talk about union with Christ, and they're talking about how we're united to His identity. Other verses talk about union with Christ, and they talk about us being united to His story. And then other verses talk about union with Christ and talk about us being united to His people, His identity, His story, and His people. And I want us to see this together. We're going to dig into some of these verses. Stay with me, friends. You didn't come here this morning to check out. You came here this morning to be changed by encountering the beauty and goodness and loveliness of our God through His Word. And we have good news to see together. In Christ, you are united to His identity. It means this, goodness. What is true about Him is true about you. What can be said about him can be said about you because you are united to him. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is innocent. He's blameless and perfect and vindicated, and he's above accusation. It means this, there's no accusation that can stand against him because he was perfect in life, faithful in death, and victorious in resurrection. And you are in Christ. So there's no condemnation for you. You're not your sin. You're not your worst moment. You are seen as Jesus is seen because what's true about him is true about you because you're united to him. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. That's what uh, God says, the Father says to the Son at His baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the only begotten Son of God. And what has been true for all of eternity about the Son is the Son has been loved by the Father for all of eternity, and you are in Christ And in Christ, you are a beloved son, a beloved daughter, a beloved child of God. Jesus is the Son of God by nature and by right. We are children of God by blood and by gift in Jesus. And we'll cover this more in the coming weeks, but in John, Jesus makes this scandalous claim where he will say, the Father loves us just as much as he loves the Son. All of the love that the Father has for the Son, the Father also has for you because we are in Christ. In Christ, you are a loved child of God. What's true about him is true about you. Galatians, or Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life, I love this verse, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. God is a trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit And the Father, Son, and Spirit have for all of eternity enjoyed relational security as a trinity of love. And we are unworthy to be welcomed into something that pure and that holy, but Jesus is our hiding place. That in and through Him, we are as secure in God as the Son is secure in God. We do not become God. We're not divine, but we're welcomed into that divine communion. We are hidden with Christ in God. What's true about him is true about you. We're also not just united to his identity. We're also united to his story. It means I am united to what he has done, is doing, and will do. We see this all over the New Testament. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His death is your death. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, and raised us up with him. Raised us up means his resurrection is your resurrection. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means we participate in his ascension and the realities of his heavenly enthronement. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He lived this perfect life, the only human to ever lived a perfectly human, perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful life, and that life of righteousness becomes your life of righteousness. All that is past. We're united to what he has done. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification is the theological word for the reality that we're being changed into the likeness of Christ. Where does that happen? In Christ. When is that happening? Right now. We're being changed by him. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right now he's building his church. Right now he is uh, mobilizing his people to share the good news with the lost and he's working through the gifts that he's given his people on his mission for his glory and all of that is present, what Jesus is presently doing and we're united to that. And then in the future, it says in, in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus will return and who will be there with him when he returns? We will. The all who are in Christ will. So we're united to what he will do. His story, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly intercession, his future glorious return, that all becomes ours in Christ. His story becomes our story. We benefit from it. We participate in it. We're united to his identity, united to his story, and then we're also united to his people. We are in Christ with one another. Romans 12, 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Being united to Jesus means being united to his church. Um, no Christian has ever been in Christ all alone. As my friend Kyle Worley says, he's a pastor in Richardson, it's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. To be united to him is to be united to his people. And here's why that's really good news. That means being united to a people that Jesus deeply loves. Uh, Paul, who wrote many of these verses that we just read, he first heard this the first time he met Jesus. And the first time he met Jesus, he was in a bad way. He was not uh, in a good patch in life. He was persecuting the church of Jesus uh, as Saul. He was killing Christians. He was a happy spectator while Jesus' friend and follower Stephen was murdered by a mob with stones. It says in Acts that he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and so he's on his way to hurt more Christians. Jesus shows up, Saul falls down, and Jesus says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. At this moment, Paul had never met Jesus. Paul had never touched Jesus, much less persecuted him. But what Paul learns that day is that Jesus so identifies with his people. He so loves and represents his people that what you do to them, you do to him. To be in Christ, to be united to the people, means being united to a people that Jesus loves and leads and forms and claims so intimately as his own that when he, he says, when you threw stones at them, I felt it. I felt the wounds. It hurt me just as it hurt them. He loves his people. So when he saves us, he saves us to himself into a people who he loves and represents. In Christ means united to his identity, What's true about him is true about us 
united his story. Uh, we're united to what he has done, is doing, and will do. We're united to his people. We are in Christ with one another. Um, I, I find illustrations helpful. A lot of this can be abstract. There's a mystery to it for sure. And so there's no illustration that's perfect or complete, but, but I think they help. The rollers, my family, we love the Dallas Mavericks. Love them. Uh, Carrie, my wife, she used to be a Spurs fan, but a few years ago she became a Mavs fan because nothing is impossible with God. <laughs> and over sabbatical, um, I, over sabbatical, I had a day alone or an afternoon alone with my uh, daughter, Adeline, who's a basketball player who loves basketball. And so together we watched uh, the documentary on Dirk Nowitzki called The Perfect Shot. Has anybody seen it? Oh, you've got, oh, you've got to watch it. Yeah, it's really important to your life that you see this documentary. Um, <laughs> There's part of the documentary where the Mavs are in the playoffs in 2011, and um, it's, they're showing clips of game two against the Miami Heat, which was this really pivotal game of the series, and the Mavs are down by a lot, and she says, Dad, pause it. So I paused it, and she looked at me, and she said, did we win? And I looked at her, and I said, yes, we won. And we actually go on to win three of the next four and win the title, the most meaningful title in the history of the NBA, according to everyone. And um, she looked at me and got a big smile on her face, and she goes, yes. So she asked the question, did we win? That happened in 2011. Um, that was two years before she was born. She was not there. She was not even alive. And then I say, yes, we won. I was alive, but... Shockingly, I didn't play in any of those games, right? They didn't need my help, but we're fans. So when we talk about the team, we talk in, in first-person plurals. We claim the team as our team. The team claims us as their fans. So their victories are our victories. Uh, we talk about what they accomplish as what we accomplish, right, because of our relationship to them. That's how we talk about sports. That's how we talk about the relationship between teams and fans. In fact, when they won the championship, Dirk stands on the balcony of the W Hotel in downtown Dallas and invites the whole crowd, most of whom did not play a game in the playoffs. He invites the whole crowd to sing, we are the champions. He welcomes them to share in his accomplishment. Now, hear this. Dirk is just a man. I'm not comparing him to Jesus. I need you to know that. Uh, but if by chance Dirk hears this one day, I love you um, <laughs> with my whole heart. One of the phrases used about Jesus in the union with Christ conversation, you find it over and again, is a, it's a phrase corporate representative or corporate personality. And, and, and how we can understand it is that there's somebody who represents a people and they accomplish, they in themselves accomplish something, but because of the people they represent, their accomplishment is shared with those people as if, it was, if, they, as if they had participated in it, accomplished it. So they get to uh, enjoy the victory as if they had done it with themselves. And so with Jesus, what union with Christ teaches is His victory becomes our victory because we're in Him. We did not accomplish anything. We did not win anything. None of us were alive when Jesus conquered the grave. He lived the life. He did the work. He won the victory. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, we receive as a gift his identity. And in Christ Jesus, we receive as a gift his story. And in Christ Jesus, we receive as a gift the people that he represents that we belong to with him. It's like a branch 
that is so secure and alive and fruitful because it's connected to this healthy vine. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be in Christ. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to return to all of this, and there's so much left unsaid that we'll need other Sundays to dive into. Here's what I hope God does, what I'm praying for, for me and for us. I've been talking for 24 minutes about being in Christ, uh, and what you've heard is that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ, and, and I hope what you've heard explicitly or, or maybe just intuited is that the most important thing about you is this. It's the thing about you, Christian. So we could change the question from what does it mean to be a Christian to who are you, and the answer is the same. In Christ, that's who I am. And um, I am just convinced that everything we have heard for the last 24 minutes is really hard for us to believe and even harder for us to live out. And part of that is because we have all heard this, please hear me, we have all heard this as a people living in a moment in history that is filled with deep confusion about identity, meaning, purpose, and where to find it. Um, we are in a moment in history that in many ways is saying the opposite of everything that you've heard this morning. And we're all influenced by that. Um, so a couple people have given different names to like this moment in history in the spirit of at least the Western world. Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, calls this age that we're in the culture of authenticity. Uh, many others have called it expressive individualism. And if I could just sum it up, as we are in here saying you are in Christ, the spirit of our age is saying, no, 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 you are self-made. And it comes out in these cultural slogans that are so familiar to us, some of you might even just roll your eyes at them. Find yourself, be true to yourself, follow your heart, live your truth. You do you. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Make something of yourself. Now look, could there be kernels of truth in that? Uh, is there a way to baptize some of those statements? Maybe. But look, the spirit behind them and how most people use them is not in view of helping us live out our being in Christ. Alan Noble is a Christian author and professor, and uh, he says, this is the fundamental lie of modernity, the age that we're living in. The fundamental lie is that we are our own. And he explains, to be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. So I'm responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values, and electing where I belong. No one has the right, no one has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. And again, are there kernels of truth in some of that? Sure. But what happens is if I'm responsible for all of that, if I'm responsible for my purpose and my identity and substantiating my own meaning, it means I have to look inward for all those things means I have to possess all of those things. I have to find all of those things within myself. I have to have enough. I have to be enough. I have to accomplish enough to build some sort of life that feels worthy enough, impressive enough, and satisfying enough to make me feel like I'm okay. And it's not working. It's not working. Because for it to work, it means we have to have everything we need inside of ourselves to live the life we were meant to live. And we don't have everything inside of ourselves to live the life we were meant to live. So as a society, and I know you've seen the data, I know you've seen some sort of study, I know you've seen the trends, but as a society, we are exhausted. As a people, we are exhausted and anxious and discontent 
and terrified. And a lot of that is we are shriveling under the weight of being in charge of our own identity and value and meaning. Uh, A way to say it maybe would be we are dying on the vine of being self-made people. I feel this. Um, I've studied for union with Christ for about six weeks now. Um, Know all of the theological terms, read all of the books that people who have studied this say you have to read that book. Uh, And what's true is that because of sin inside of me and lies around me, some of the spirit of our age has even more of a hold of me than all that does. Like I feel the pressure, maybe you do too, I feel the pressure that I am holding my value and my meaning and my existence in my own hands. And I'm not always aware of it, I'm not always aware of it, but it only takes a little bit of criticism or a little bit of suffering or a little bit of failure or a little bit of discontentment or even just a little bit of being alone all by myself to realize it's a shaky thing to build your life on your own efforts. It's a shaky thing to believe that I am all that I need. W.H. Auden is an English poet. In one of his poems, he wrote these two lines that I found convicting. Each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom. Each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom, meaning in the prison of my own frailty, limits, sin, inadequacy, we can almost, we can all almost convince ourselves that we are all we need. And this lie is not new. It just has different names now. It traces itself all the way back to Genesis 3 when humanity is told that they can become like God by finding life independent from and outside of God. And all of that, the sin inside of us combined with the lies around us, I think are just going to be a challenge for many of us. It's going to make this really hard to believe, even harder to walk out in. And there's so much to say about that. I just want to name what I really don't want to happen. Uh, We gather for several Sundays, and we hear over and again that we are in Christ and all that means but we never acknowledge in our hearts or collectively together how this truth stands in direct conflict with what some of us or all of us hear Monday through Saturday, or or even never acknowledge that for many of us the lies have a greater hold on us than the truth. And so instead of living these lives out of our union with Christ, we're trying to do life and trying to make meaning and trying to craft identity the way everyone else is, and we've lost the very core of what it means to be a Christian, to be united to Him. And so I just don't want to play games in that way. This is my, in bringing all this up, this is my commitment to you that I want to name the lies and I want to force the fight. I want to force the fight. I don't want to be people who have these syncretized identities where I've got my identity in Christ over here and I've got all these other things over here that I look to for identity that are really the things that I find meaning and value in. I just want us to renounce what's false and hold on to what's true. In light of all that, here's how our weeks will go. Every week, we'll just have three points. We'll consider three things. So this is me offering my outline to you for the whole series now. I know as you think all week long, I wonder what the sermon points are going to be next week and these burning questions that keep you up at night. I just want to relieve you of that stress. Three things every Sunday. A truth to embrace in Christ, a lie to renounce through Christ, and a step to take with Christ. A truth to embrace in Christ. It means every Sunday we'll dive into some aspect of union. Uh, At some Sunday in the next few weeks, we'll spend all of our time seeing that we're loved in Christ. Jesus prays in John 17, 
Paul prays in Ephesians, and the prayer is all about us living out of the fact that in Christ we're loved. A lie to renounce through Christ. We're just going to name things that have taken hold of many of our hearts and not just name them, but we'll be invited to renounce them as false in our life. Lies like, I am only lovable if I prove myself worthy of love. A step to take with Christ. Part of living out our union with Christ is learning to commune with him. And by commune, we just mean spend time with him, to abide with him, like he says in John 15. So every week, we'll just offer a small step, nothing original or creative, just the tried and true practices of communing with God that have marked the lives of Christians for centuries. Things like making time in your life to talk with the God that you're united with. And my hope, my hope is that we would grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ, that we would grow in our love for Jesus, our affection for Jesus, and that what God would do is God would forge this kind of Christ-centered, Christ-sourced resilience that would build into our souls a sense of self and meaning and value that isn't easily shaken but is deeply rooted in Jesus himself. Uh, And uh, I would like to end every sermon doing something together, and I'll need your help with this part. In 1563, the faculty of Heidelberg University in Germany published a catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. Didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about a creative name. They just went with what was available. A catechism is just a teaching tool. Do you know what a catechism is? Uh, If you've got any sort of background in uh, Anglican church or Presbyterian or Lutheran, you know what a catechism is. It's just a series of questions and answers that are designed to help people learn and remember the truths of the faith. And so it asks a question, and then it offers an answer. It's like a call and response. So one person, like me, would ask a question, and then listeners like you would answer. And here's the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What's your only comfort in life and death? And I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to do this together every Sunday as we end in this series, starting this morning. Maybe this feels uh, foreign to you. Maybe it feels strange to you. But here's what's true, friends. We are being catechized everywhere else in life to believe things that are not beautiful like this catechized by our shows and our social media and our own thoughts. And so most of the language around us is not leading us to think about Jesus. Remembering and believing that we're in Christ is a fight. And so let's wage a little war together against the lies. Let's lift our voices together in truth. I'll ask a question. And if you don't participate, I'll feel really lonely. But would you out loud just give the answer and then I'll pray. It'll be on the screen behind me. Citizens Church, as a people who are in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and death? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. It's true. Goodness. What is so comforting, God, about this truth is it's not um, as true as it is believed by Christians. It is as true as it is held secure by Christ. So thank you. Thank you that what 
we recited just now. It's not just the most comforting or beautiful or hope-filled thing about us. It's the truest thing about us. Whether we had a good week or not, whether we're in the middle of a mess, in a valley, or on a mountaintop, we are united to you, Jesus. Um, what's true about you is true about us. Uh, we are united to what you have done, are doing, and will do. We're united together to the people that you love, and we're one of those people that you love. So we thank you. Uh, you know, God, my hopes for our time this morning and over the next several weeks, uh, my hopes exceed my abilities. And so I'm just asking for your grace to where, um, Lord, my abilities and my own frailty and my own sin and pride, where those things limit what happens in a moment like this, you would far exceed them in your kindness and lavish grace on us. We love you. We thank you. Amen.